welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and I'm delighted to say that the Byline Times podcast is now going weekly. Thanks very much indeed for your support. In this episode, reflections on the great PPE procurement scandal exposed over many weeks by Sam Bright in Byline Times and now backed up in a damning report by the National Audit Office. We'll be hearing from Sam and Labour MP Dawn Butler. At the end of the day, this is our government and, you know, we have a democracy, so you can't just give money, millions of pounds, to your mates. Uncomfortable questions too for Scottish football and its long drawn out inquiry into historic child sexual abuse. The Byline Times has uncovered a potential conflict of interest among the independent panel assessing the evidence. The idea of an independent report is to look at everything from an impartial point of view, to draw conclusions based on evidence gathered. And if the panel or any of the panel members are not independent, then I'm I'm not sure that you could have confidence that that would be the case. Before all that, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source, answerable only to our readers and listeners. There's no media mogul backing us, no big corporations buying influence through advertising. Instead, we rely on subscribers to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It's a great read and it costs just £36 a year, a small price to pay for honest, independent journalism. You can find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's where you can get the subscription details, bylinetimes.com. Let's start then with the scandal around the way in which taxpayers' cash has been used to purchase PPE, personal protective equipment, for various government bodies since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. Claims of cronyism and a lack of transparency in how this PPE has been sourced have dogged the government for months, and no news outlet has done more to highlight these concerns than Byline Times, specifically Sam Bright, who has really led the way on this, highlighting how Conservative Party donors and companies with no real history of PPE provision have managed to land valuable government contracts during the pandemic. We never doubted Sam for a moment, but now there is independent corroboration of what he's been saying, in the form of a report by the National Audit Office, which has said that more than £10 billion worth of contracts were awarded to companies without competition. Yes, £10 billion worth. And there was a fast lane for PPE suppliers who were referred by ministers, MPs, members of the House of Lords and government officials. Let's hear now Sam Bright and Dawn Butler, the Labour MP for Brent Central, who has been asking questions about this in the House of Commons. Did Sam feel vindicated by the NAO report? I do, I do. It's um, it's a quite disarming report, actually, because bodies like this can talk in quite technical and straightforward language. And even despite this, the things that the NAO lay out are pretty shocking. So as we've heard, £10 billion worth of procurement deals awarded without competition. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the things that was most surprising and damning, I thought, was that £1.5 billion worth of deals was awarded before the government even got its due diligence sorted out, which meant that millions of pounds worth of contracts were awarded to companies that were later, when the government set up its due diligence process, 
flagged on the system as red, as in they shouldn't really be given contracts. I mean, that is just an appalling situation, especially considering the the Department of Health last year alone spent £1.1 billion on procurement deals. The sums of money are vast. And yeah, it's, it's good that we've had official confirmation about the things that we've been banging on about for months. And there are charges of cronyism hanging around the Johnson government. They're often batted back by government supporters. But when you look at this fast track system for people who were known to ministers and members of the House of Lords as well and and government officials, it does suggest that certainly at the start of the coronavirus crisis, if you knew somebody in government, you had a greater chance of getting a, a PPE contract. Yeah, it says that quite clearly and explicitly. So the first thing to say is that you had about a one in 10 chance of winning a contract if you were put through what was called the high priority lane. So 50 out of 500 companies that were put through this lane who knew ministers, MPs, etc. got a contract. But if you went through the normal lane, only 100 out of 15,000 companies were awarded contracts in that lane. So despite the fact that procurement is supposed to be a level playing field between all the suppliers, you can see through this report that it really, it really wasn't. But not only this, the report lays out that there were these 50 companies out of 500 that went through the high priority lane. But the government didn't actually record the source of half of these companies. So it didn't record to then report to the National Audit Office which minister, which MP, which official had referred the company to the government, which essentially meant that the National Audit Office couldn't check the receipts. In a situation where you're awarding billions of pounds worth of contracts without competition, that should surely be the first thing that you should be doing is recording where exactly these companies were funneled from. And the government didn't even do that in a lot of cases. Dawn, you've been raising questions about the PPE procurement scandal in Parliament ever since Sam started raising questions. I know it's a story that's been picked up in other outlets as well, places like Newsnight and Dispatches. What kind of questions have you been asking in Parliament and what kind of response have you got? Yeah, so can I say, like, Byline Times and Sam's been doing an amazing job and I sit on the Science and Technology Committee and things were coming out and I'm thinking, why is it that this isn't being picked up? Because it's just outrageous what is happening in front of our own very eyes. And so I'm really pleased that the National Audit Office has done the report and found what they have, because it's without doubt that there has been cronyism that has taken place. But, you know, not just that. I mean, Sam talked about the priority lane and how it was that, you know, you had a one in 10 chance of getting a contract. Well, I mean, I was stunned and I've been stunned at each phase of this. And this has been going on for months. But I was stunned that they said that Pest Fix was awarded high priority in error. So one of the companies that received million pound contracts was put in a high priority lane by error. How is that possible? It's just stunning. But I've raised a number of questions to ministers. And I suppose most recently, what I've established is the question that I raised with, not in regards to PP, actually, but in regards to test and trace with Matt Hancock. 
he took great offence to me questioning him on how public money was being spent. And when I questioned him on Topham Gurin, who was awarded a £3 million contract, and nobody knows what they've done for the money, he said, well, it's got nothing to do with the, the health department. And then later on, found out from official figures that actually the health department met with them to discuss marketing. So the whole thing is a phenomenal scandal. And even at the end of the um, National Audit Office report, Gareth Davis, who's the head of the NEO, he says, and this is the thing, because the government keeps saying to me, whenever I raise a question, well, we had to do things in a hurry, they have to be excused. Well, there's no excuse for not leaving a trail or a receipt so that the money can be followed. There's no excuse for that. And the Because we talk about millions and billions of pounds, we often lose sight of just how much money that is. But Gareth Davis, head of the NEO, he says, while we recognise that there were exceptional circumstances, it remains essential that decisions are properly documented and made transparent if government is to maintain public trust that taxpayers' money is being spent appropriately and fairly. He then goes on to say that the evidence set out in our report shows these standards of transparency and documentation were not consistently met in the first phase of the pandemic. So the government has a lot to answer. Although does the government have some kind of excuse as well, Dawn? There we were in the first throes of the pandemic. There wasn't enough PPE equipment to go around. And the concern then, surely if you are a minister, is to acquire the PPE and distribute it to the front line of the health service and wherever else it was needed, rather than worrying about a a bureaucratic paper trail. Well, at the end of the day, this is our government and, you know, we have a democracy, so you can't just give money, millions of pounds to your mates and not expect people to ask questions is the first thing. The second thing is, even if you are giving contracts to people who you know, they have to be able to deliver a job. Otherwise, that is something completely different than awarding a contract to somebody. That is the corruption that we talk about in other countries. So there isn't really an excuse not to having due diligence and not ensuring that the organisations and the companies that were awarded contracts could deliver. And that is the big thing. I, I don't mind if you're going to give a contract to somebody who you know. It might not pass the smell test, but if they delivered in time, on budget, what we needed, then that's a different story. We don't even know if the majority of these companies actually delivered. I mean, we know that they were, according to the NAO, we know that three contracts were ended. We know there's one still on, ongoing, but we don't know if all the other companies delivered. We don't know what was entailed in the contract. We don't know how many masks were were required, how many were contracted to be supplied, how many were supplied. We still haven't got those details. That's really important. I see, Sam, that the DHSC, Department for Health and Social Care, claims that there was a a failure rate of 0.5% in the provision of equipment delivered in March and April. 0.5% doesn't sound too bad, but in financial terms, that's £61.5 million. That was taxpayers' money. Do we know if the taxpayer got that money back? 
We don't. I mean, I've spoken to health officials in the past who pointed out that there is a break clause in certain contracts that allows the government to recoup money, but that's taking their word for that. I would I would say that the whole thing has been messed up spectacularly. I mean, there's been reports over the past few days that the PP that we've commissioned that has been provided is actually blocking ports. So there are 11,000 containers worth of UK PPE sat in Felixstowe port, which incidentally has hired former government minister Chris Grayling, notorious, to be a consultant there. There are 11,000 containers worth of PPE, which is preventing vital supplies from coming into that port because it's blocking all other routes of entry. So even when the government's commissioned all this PPE, it hasn't known what to do with it at the end point. It hasn't got enough warehousing for it. It just seems to be one failure after another. I think what's interesting as well is that, referring to what Dawn says about a notorious contract that went wrong, which is often cited, has been it's been cited by Keir Starmer last week at PMQs, is Iander Capital, which is a company that was commissioned for £250 million to supply face masks. £150 million worth of those face masks aren't usable in the NHS, although Iander claimed that they supplied what the government asked for, so we don't know who exactly messed up in that case. The interesting thing, though, that is drawn out from the NAO report is that this deal was brokered by um, a person called Andrew Mills, who was simultaneously an advisor to the company and a member of the government's board of trade. However, when the government did its due diligence about this company, it didn't find any conflicts of interest in that case, despite the fact that an advisor was both sat working for the company and the government simultaneously. I mean, if that happened in the case of Iander, did the government do its due diligence at all in a whole number of contracts that we've seen that have gone out to Conservative Party donors, etc.? Interesting question. Uh, the truth is, we just don't know. Uh, Dawn, in your case, you're raising these questions and we hear that in some cases they're raised by Keir Starmer, your party leader at PMQs and so on. Is there any more that you can do? Is it just about raising public awareness by asking difficult questions of ministers in the Commons? Yeah, so writing written questions to the ministers, like I have done with Pestfix, as I said earlier, who it's the first time today that because the NA report that I've established that they were put in the high priority lane in error. So, you know, £108 million was awarded to Pestfix in error. I'm going to question the minister and the government on that. But besides trying to get the ministers to be honest about what they've done and what's happening, what I can do at the Science and Technology Committee is to delve deeper into it and try and get the government to learn the lessons so that in this next phase, it's not going to happen again, because we will be needing PPE for probably the next year. And the thing is that there were lots of companies who could have provided PPE, but were not given the opportunity to. Some reasons the government said, you know, some people they said were too small, but yet still they were giving contracts to companies that didn't exist three months earlier or giving contracts to Deloitte, for instance, for work that was done retrospectively. All of these things, questions not only need to be raised and they need to be answered, but we need to ensure that the government doesn't do it again. Dawn Butler speaking to me from the House of Commons.
busy woman, as you can tell by her laptop pinging away, along with Sam Bright, who has led the way in the Byline Times, exposing the scandal of PPE procurement. You can read much more from Sam about this at bylinetimes.com. And just a reminder that Byline Times does not owe allegiance to any political party. We aren't backed by a media tycoon, nor do we depend on funding from any corporate source. We're here to challenge the abuse of money or power or both. And to do that, we rely on people like you taking out a subscription. Just £36 a year for our fantastic monthly newspaper. More details at bylinetimes.com. Now, my story for Byline Times, which has uncovered a potential conflict of interest among the panel set up to investigate historic child sex abuse in Scottish football. The review was commissioned in 2017 by the game's governing body, the Scottish Football Association, but it was meant to be independent of them. That's really important because, as well as scrutinising the failures of its member clubs, the SFA's own safeguarding procedures would come under scrutiny as well. Among the four-person review panel was a former police officer, Mark Cooper, who, in February 2018, met Michelle Gray from Glasgow, whose brother Andrew had been abused by a coach called Jim Torbett whilst playing at Celtic Boys Club. Andrew had recently died after a tragic accident in Australia and both Michelle and her mother Helen attended the meeting with Mr Cooper along with another member of the independent panel. What Michelle and her mum didn't know was that around the same time Mark Cooper was preparing to take on a part-time role as a child welfare and protection trainer for the SFA. That meant he'd be working for the organisation he was supposed to be scrutinising. I asked Michelle to take me through the story. You'll hear her say, by the way, that Mark Cooper was an employee of the SFA. That isn't true. He wasn't an employee. But he did work for them and continues to do so. Yeah, Adrian, I met with Mark Cooper and his colleague probably about three months after Andrew died in early 2018 because they obviously wanted to hear firsthand from my mum the experience from when Andrew obviously joined Celtic Boys Club when he'd met up with Jim Torbett and the abuse started taking place. So it was February time, February 2018, that mum and I met up with Mark Cooper and his colleague. Now at that point we were assured that those two people were completely independent to the SFA and were employed for the SFA inquiry into the historical child sexual abuse that, that had been taking place. Mum and I, honestly, we opened our heart up and, and it was a very emotional meeting. I can remember it vividly because it was the first time that my mum had actually spoken to anyone official in relation to, to what had happened and, and what Andrew had disclosed about. And we were confident at that meeting that the information that, that we were disclosing and sharing with was purely going to be held and, and considered by the independent inquiry team. We found out early on this year that whilst that meeting took place, whilst we were with and, and spoke of, of what had happened to Mark Cooper, that at that time he was also employed by the SFA. And I, I honestly can't tell you the the heart and devastation that, that it caused us because you know, all along we were we were led to believe that there was no conflict of interest, you know, that this was completely separate and completely independent. 
Why is it so important to you that the review is independent of the Scottish Football Association? It's pure and simple, Adrian. It's got to be independent. It's got to be a separate body that has investigated and and looked into this abuse that's took place over nearly 50 years. I mean, for someone to be a part of the inquiry team and to also be employed by the very organisation that has said they're going to look at this and investigate it fully and, and, and issue a report, well, that to me is somebody that's marking up their own homework. I mean, how can you possibly be transparent and be honest about your employer when it certainly looks as though there has been failings within the SFA over a number of years and on several occasions? Certainly where Torbett was concerned, he had been reported and nothing was done about it. That's definitely been a conflict of interest and, and we're just disgusted by it. We really are. Now, we should make it clear, and I'm going to read Mark Cooper's response in full very shortly, that Mark Cooper is not, nor never has been, an employee in the literal sense of the Scottish Football Association, but he has worked for them, as we will discover. Now, looking at his LinkedIn profile, he says that since May 2015 to the present, he has been a match day delegate for the Scottish Professional Football League Limited. He says that provides governance and support working for the SPFL, the SFA and all professional clubs to increase stadium and supporter safety. So there's work he's done there since 2015, which has links to the SFA. And then more recently, since February 2018, according to his LinkedIn profile, he's been a part-time safeguarding tutor for the Scottish Football Association, a role that continues today. So not an employee as such, but doing work for the Scottish Football Association. Before I read Mark's response in full, though, Michelle, I I just want to work out how significant his role was in the meeting with you and your mum. Was, Was he just there as an observer in attendance? Was he a full part of the meeting to whom you were sharing your deepest emotional thoughts about the loss of your brother? Yeah, it was very much part of the meeting, Adrian. You know, there was questions that he asked Mum and I and and we answered them. There was follow-up emails between myself and him following the meeting. And I know, having spoke to other victims and survivors, that he told them also that he was independent, that the inquiry was independent, inquiry team, sorry, was independent to the SFA. They haven't been given the whole story. For someone to sit there and, and, you know, ask his information in relation to what happened, where Andrew was concerned, and for us to share that and think, okay, we've given this information, it's going to be taken and considered and, you know, the correct action is going to be taken from it because these guys are experts in what they do in relation to um, protecting children and they're going to make sure that If there's any damning evidence that's been uncovered during this inquiry, it's going to be reported on because they're absolutely nothing to do with the SFA or Celtic Boys or Celtic Boys Club. And to find out that, no, actually, that person wasn't, Mark Cooper wasn't independent, just begs belief. And I know if Andrew was here, he would be absolutely destroyed by it because, yet again, we haven't been told the full truth. So, Michelle, I'm going to read you now the response I got from Mark Cooper. And when I say that, before I do, let me just say that I've written 
in anticipation of this podcast to the Scottish Football Association, I have had no response. That's the Scottish Football Association refusing to deal with questions about the appearance of a possible conflict of interest in an independent review, which they have commissioned, which I personally think is disgraceful. Now, this was Mark Cooper's response. Mark Cooper was good enough to respond to my questions and has attempted, I think, to answer them fully. He says, I can confirm I was appointed to the independent review team in early 2017. The review commenced its work later in June, the same year. As part of my work on the review, I accompanied a colleague to a meeting with Michelle Gray in Glasgow on the 7th of February 2018. You are incorrect when you imply that I am an employee of the SFA. I never have been. I have been doing occasional work through my private limited company, Dunny Deer Consulting and Support Limited, for the SFA, delivering different courses relating to children's well-being and protection. I started delivering these in late March 2018 and continue to do so. I'm sorry that Michelle Gray and her mother feel that this impacts on my independence to work on the review team. It never has. The fact is that along with other members of the review team, I carried out this role independently, diligently and to the very best of my ability. To conclude, my roles on the review team and that of associate trainer delivering children's wellbeing and protection training are unequivocally separate. So that's Mark Cooper's comment. I should say as well, Michelle, I did invite him to come and chat on the podcast. He declined that invitation. What's your response to that? Um, blown away by it. You know, how can you sit in front of two bereaved women and tell them that you are completely independent and separate to the SFA and lead them to think that there is no connection and, and you have no no connection whatsoever with anyone involved within the SFA? and at the same time be working with them in a different capacity. It, it, it's, it begs belief it really does, Adrian. Michelle Gray. Now, it's worth noting here that Mark Cooper was appointed to the Independent Review Panel by its chair, Martin Henry, not by the Scottish Football Association. But investigating the SFA was part of the panel's remit. None of this, of course, proves that Mark Cooper has done anything inappropriate either. But from the perspective of survivors and their families, it's a bad look, suggesting perhaps an inappropriate closeness between the body responsible for running football in Scotland and those supposed to be holding them to account. Emma Bryson is one of the founders of the campaigning organisation Speak Out Survivors. What's her reaction to Michelle Gray's story? Oh, I completely understand how she feels. And I think she put her faith in the system, you know, with regards to the review. She believed it was supposed to be impartial and independent. And then for there to be any suggestion after the fact that it wasn't, I think is, I'm, I'm sure it is really upsetting, but also a betrayal of trust, I think. Why is it important that the independent inquiry is not only independent, but is seen to be independent? Because if it's if you can't believe that it's independent, then I don't think you can take its findings at face value. You know, the idea of an independent report is to look at everything from an impartial point of view, to draw conclusions based on evidence gathered. And if the panel or any of the panel members are not independent, then I'm, I'm not sure that you could have confidence that that would be the case. 
Of course, Mark Cooper is at pains to stress that he believes he's acted diligently and fairly and independently. But I suppose there will always be a question mark in the minds of people like Michelle if he's done any kind of work and continues to have work with the SFA at the same time as being a member of that independent panel. Yeah, I think, you know, the question over whether he was working in a freelance capacity or as an employee of the SFA, you know, ultimately, I think that represents a kind of blurring of lines. And, you know, at best, it suggests a lack of transparency. And I think that transparency is key here. The whole issue around the abuse of children, it's very much based upon a culture of silence. You know, survivors find it really difficult to talk about this. It's very easy to silence them. And I think it's very difficult to take on board Michelle's concerns. And I think that the concerns of any survivors and any survivor families, the panel for this independence review kind of have to be above suspicion, if you like, in order to be taken, you know, to take to be taken seriously, to have faith in the in, in the outcome. At the time of speaking, Emma, the SFA are refusing to deal with my questions about this, which I believe are driven only by legitimate public interest journalism. They simply won't respond. I think it shows a failure to understand that actually the survivors should be of prime consideration here. You know, the rights and interests of the survivors who have stood up, who've spoken about their experiences, who've done their best to see some kind of justice board, you know, they should be the first priority of everybody involved. But we know, don't we, how difficult it is for victims, for survivors to speak out. There are questions of public shame in their minds at least there are questions of the institutional power that is held by the abuser if you speak out for example you might lose your position at a junior football club you might never play for them again and so on and you may feel a a deep sense of guilt for what happened even if that guilt is horribly misplaced so if people like Michelle and Helen come forward and share their experiences it's obviously crucially important that the people with whom they share those experiences can be trusted in their eyes and that nothing is done to undermine that sense of trust. Absolutely. I think that any survivor who comes forward, whether that's reporting to the police or disclosing to family members, and, and, re- and also regardless of the situation in which the abuse occurred, whether it was institutional, organisational, in a family setting, you know, the, the, the very first thing that every survivor has to overcome is that culture of silence. You know, they've been conditioned to keep secrets and the sense of shame that goes with that, because when you're talking about child abuse, you're talking about children who are groomed by adults. There is no comfortable way to have conversations about child abuse. And for anyone who does so, you have to put your faith and your trust in the person that you're you're talking to. So whether that's a police officer, whether that's a member of an independent panel, transparency and trust are absolutely critical to this. Emma Bryson. Now, where in all this, you might be asking, is the Scottish government? Well, they didn't want the job of investigating historic child sex abuse in football and asked the SFA to do it. Janine Rennie from the support group Wellbeing Scotland thinks that was a mistake. I've always said from the beginning in terms of the inquiry into any child abuse across Scotland, I felt it should be at government level and fully independent. And the best way to do that was to be at government level in terms of an independent review into abuse. There needed to be a review, actually, of all sport. We've seen loads of different things coming out from all areas, but 
for that review to feel okay for the survivors and the survivors' families. I think the independence is absolutely vital to ensure that they feel confidence in the process. A lot of them would have felt as time went on that they would have felt maybe things were being covered up or things weren't being transparent. So the independence is absolutely key. Because in the case of the Scottish Football Association, they have themselves been accused of failures of safeguarding. Michelle said that complaints about her brother's abuser, Jim Torbett, were made to the SFA. And presumably that's why having been handed the responsibility to investigate historic child abuse in football by the Scottish Government, the SFA then said, actually, we're going to put this to an independent commission rather than investigate it ourselves because we're one of the bodies that needs to be investigated. I think it's always important with any investigation that it be an external person to carry it out because it's absolutely vital that there can be absolutely no input into that investigation by anybody that could be involved. So it's vital in these circumstances that it's completely independent and it's completely transparent and everybody feels safe in that process. So for a survivor of abuse or a family of a survivor of abuse, as Michelle expressed there, whether it be true or not true or right or wrong, if there's any kind of feeling within that survivor or survivor's family that that's not a safe environment, that's extremely re-traumatising for them. And you can see with Michelle moving forward that she's really, really struggling with the thought that she may have spoken to somebody who could have been compromised. I'm not commenting on whether he was or he wasn't. I'm just saying, like, you know, this in a situation like that, it's really, really important to be transparent. No, and obviously we can't look into Mark Cooper's heart or his mind. But in this kind of situation, appearance is very important, isn't it, to the survivors and their families. They need the reassurance that everything looks open. And from Michelle's evidence, she clearly doesn't feel that's the case. Yeah, I think for survivors and survivors' families, they perceive that there was cover-ups over a number of years. And, um, you know, there was evidence to support that by the fact that some of the people who were involved in abuse in football went on to work within football. So they quite rightly felt that there was concerns there that things hadn't been transparent in the past. So therefore, it made it doubly important that we were fully transparent and investigating now to ensure that the lessons were learned and that we move forward without the same issues. You know, I know there's been many changes in safeguarding now that, you know, weren't there in place at, at the time, but to totally learn the lessons and make sure these things never happen again, I would say transparency and openness are the most important things that we do. Anyone that's involved in this situation, we need to be completely transparent and open to get the trust of the survivors and the survivor families because Otherwise, like I say, they're going to go away and ruminate over this and be upset and be be traumatised again by, could I trust that person? Was that okay? You know, so the transparency is extremely important. To my view, that means it has to be a completely separate organisation who does the investigation because then they will uh, have the ability to dig further and see what went wrong. Janine Rennie from Wellbeing Scotland. Now, we did contact the Scottish Government. They told us the final version of the independent review report commissioned by the Scottish FA to look at historical sexual abuse in football will be published in due course and we will carefully consider its findings. But when exactly will that be? The SFA's final report was due to be published in 2018, but instead only an interim report was released. 
Now that did contain numerous recommendations for improving safeguarding, but some of the key questions in the panel's original terms of reference remain unanswered. Who in Scottish football knew of these alleged instances of sexual abuse at the time or subsequently? What did they know and what was done? It remains to be seen whether these potentially explosive issues are directly addressed in the final report or whether, as some survivors fear, it will be a whitewash. Here at Byline Times, we'll be watching. My name's Adrian Goldberg and you can read more from me about this at bylinetimes.com. I'll be back with the podcast next week. Before I go, though, just a reminder that Byline Times is an independent news source holding to account those with money and power. We can only do that because of people like you who subscribe to our monthly newspaper, Byline Times. It's a great read and costs only £36 a year, a small price to pay for honest, independent journalism. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. See you next time.